This morning, as we look into God's word, I wonder how many of us can truly say, I wonder how many of us can truly say that the pursuit of the knowledge of God has become a driving passion in our lives. Let me say that again. How many of us can truly say it? Think about it a minute. Can say that the pursuit of the knowledge of God, you know, that has become a driving passion in each one of our lives. And I need to clarify that a little, a, a little more, I guess. Our desire is not to, the idea and the desire is not to accumulate a knowledge or not to accumulate just knowledge. The idea is getting to know the heart of God itself. It's the idea of knowing God in such a way that that knowledge transforms our lives. That's the point. And I've titled my sermon this morning, Knowing the Heart of God, or Pursuing the Heart of God, I guess. Because we can spend all eternity and never really know everything about God, right? Knowing the heart of God. Turn with me, uh, if you have your Bibles, to the Gospel of Luke. Because I feel that Luke, more than any other gospel, pushes this aspect of God's heart and God's character a lot more than the other gospels. And so turn with me to Luke and uh, Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 19. It's a familiar story, but that it begins with Luke chapter 19 starts with a very familiar story. It's the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And so verses 1 all the way through 9 tells us the story of Zacchaeus. And then in verse 10, what I want to bring our attention, draw our attention to, is the point of the story of Zacchaeus that Luke puts in. Okay, the reason Luke uh, added this story in the Bible, and here's it in verse, verse 10, chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The story of Zacchaeus had one point. The reason he put it in there is to show the heart of God, which is what? To seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. And again, this story is Zacchaeus especially reveals the heart of God to us. And I feel that this is such a big thrust, especially in the gospel of Luke. I mean, in the gospel, in the whole entire Bible itself, the heart of God is revealed that God is a God who seeks to save the lost. Church, the, we know this already. The Bible is not just a historical book about the accounts of Israel or whatever happened back then. It's not, an, it's not a historical book. What it really is, is the salvation history. That's the point. Salvation history. And of course, we have the German phrase we use, Heilsgeschichte, the salvation history. That's the point. To show us how God works his salvation through history of Israel. And then later on through the book of Acts to the end of the world. That's the point of the book. Not just to give us historical knowledge of stuff but to show God working through history, saving, redeeming people. 
The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that sums up the whole idea of why Jesus came, the whole idea of the incarnation. Why did he come? To seek and save the lost. The reason he became, came as that tiny little baby to seek and save the lost. The reason he came and died on the cross, to seek and save the lost. That's the purpose. That's the heart of God right there. And I think from the point, from this first coming to when he will come again, it's still the heart of God to seek and save the lost. That's the point. That's the emphasis all the time. To seek and save both men and women who are lost. That's where the heart of God is. And it's not just a New Testament concept. Even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34 verse 16, he says, God says, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. God has always been interested in the lost right from the time Adam and Eve sinned. What was the first thing he do? He did go out looking for them. That's the idea of God seeking. When they were lost, he went out seeking them. That's where the heart of God is. This fellowship that he created us for that was broken by sin. But now he goes out seeking to save and restore that fellowship. That is the heart of God, at least one vital aspect of the, of the heart of God. Let's look at that verse a little carefully right here. It says, for the Son of Man. For the Son of Man, and of course the title, uh, you, Son of Man, emphasizes His humanity there. Because the title Son of God emphasizes His deity, His divine nature, but the Son of Man emphasizes His humanity, His, his humiliation, becoming nothing. That's the point of Him using the Son of Man where He becomes a sacrifice on behalf of all other mankind. For the Son of Man, God in human flesh, has come. Has come. The idea is, again, pointing to his Christmas, basically, the incarnation, what we call the incarnation. His entry into the world to seek. The Son of God, uh, the Son of Man has come to seek. And here again, in the Greek is what we call an infinitive of purpose. The whole purpose behind that is to save. He came to seek. Okay, it's the same kind of, uh, not getting into the Greek, but it's the same idea. The purpose is to seek. He came to seek. The purpose is to save. It's same thing equal. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And the idea of lost is something that's been totally destroyed. He's come to redeem what was being destroyed. The primary purpose of Jesus coming into the world, again, was not just to do some miracles or even be that example that we need to follow. Yes, he did all that, but the primary purpose is one thing and one thing alone, to seek and save the lost. To seek and save the lost. And again, I feel that this lies at the heart, this lies at the heart of the gospel. He came to seek and save the lost. I mean, you think about it. When the angel comes to Joseph and tells him, you'll give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will what? Save his people. That was the purpose right from the beginning. To seek and save the lost. Again, especially in Luke, I feel it's, it's emphasized so much more. Because you got to understand, Luke is not a Jew. Luke is a Greek. Traditionally, he's a Greek. 
The Jews had some concept of God. They had the law. They knew what it meant, at least in some form, to have a relationship with God, even though they missed it totally. Luke knows what it means to be lost, totally lost, no clue at all. That's why you can understand when Paul, when Luke uses the, the idea that he came to seek and save the lost, it is the lost who have no clue at all about who God is. And so this is a very important theme to Luke, you know, those who are really, really lost. And if you, again, not just, you understand Luke wrote both Luke, the gospel, and the book of Acts, right? And we know that Luke is actually, the gospel of Luke is the biggest gospel, even though it has less number of chapters. It's still the biggest gospel that's written. But throughout the book of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, your idea is the same. God is saving lost people. It starts from Jerusalem to the end of the world. He's all about one thing, seeking and saving the lost, the truly lost. The really, really, really lost. I don't know how else to put it. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And Luke presents Jesus as the son of man who came to save, to seek and save the lost. I know I'm repeating myself here, but I think it's really important to understand. I'm repeating myself on purpose because we need to understand that that is the purpose of Luke. When we read Luke, when we read Acts, have that in the back of your mind. Luke's purpose is what? To show that Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and save the lost. And I think that, that makes us or reveals to us such an important part of the heart of God himself. That's why when you come to 19.10, it kind of... It, it makes, it's that central verse that he holds everything else on, right? That he came to seek and save the lost. And so that becomes a central verse in that part. And I think his heart is revealed more when we look at Luke chapter 15, where he uses these parables to explain the whole idea of lostness and finding something. The same kind of idea is shown here when we look at Luke 15, because Luke 15 gives us the example. Actually, let's turn to Luke 15, because we're going to look at some verses from there. You see the heart of God being revealed when we read these parables that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 15. Because they give us insight into God's heart for lost people. Lost people. The setting is pretty uh, simple and straightforward. It's given to us in Luke uh, 15. The first two verses kind of sets the context up. The first two verses of Luke 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees, again, it makes it a point of contrast, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Again, remember, Luke is trying to point out lost people who are being saved. Okay, the emphasis is on that. And it says, they were all gathering around. The idea here, and if you read again, the idea and the, the, uh, the Greek word for gathering around indicates that it's been happening more than just this one occasion. That's something that was happening in the ministry of Christ, that these tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus, hanging out with him. So that's the idea here, that they were all gathering or coming around uh, when Jesus was there. They didn't just come this one time. They were always hanging out with Jesus. And then you think about these lost people, how they characterized as. I mean, you got to think again. 
these people, these tax collectors and sinners, uh, like it says here, they really didn't care about being religious. They didn't care about all the traditions. They didn't care about following the laws. I mean, they were bad people. That's it. Nothing else. They were just bad people. They didn't care about any kind of religious form or anything else. And of course, tax collectors, we know being the lowest of the low because they were the real traitors, right? Because most of them were Jews who worked for the Romans. Everybody hates the Romans. And in all likelihood, the tax collector bribed his way to get this job, right? And then as long as the Romans got whatever they wanted, the tax collector would always add and cheat the people of millions more, whatever. You know what I'm saying? So he was totally despised, totally, totally despised. He was as low as it gets. And so you have these bad people and you have the worst people ever on the face of the earth hanging around with Jesus. If you talk about lost, that's lost right there. And yet they come hanging around Jesus. And again, a normal Jew would not hang around these people because you don't want to be contaminated by these people, right? Because then you've got to go through all these ceremonial things to, to clean yourself before you can do that. So they would never even think about hanging out, or let alone eating with these people. And so we understand the reaction of the Pharisees right here. As self-righteous as they are, totally expected the reaction where they grumble, mumble, whatever. This man receives sinners and eats with them. But they don't get it because they don't get the heart of Christ for the lost. They don't understand the heart of God for the lost. They don't understand that at all. And it's always interesting, at least to me, it's always interesting for me that the tax collectors and sinners felt Jesus more accepting of them than the Pharisees did. Because he, it's pretty obvious he never really compromised and accepted their sin. Never once did he accept the sin, yet they're totally comfortable in Jesus' presence. Always makes me think, why? I don't think Jesus looked, looked at them the way the Pharisees looked at those people. I think that's part of the reason. I think it's an interesting idea, you know, that these people hung out because I think it's important to, to Luke too because by the time we come to this passage, Luke has already used the whole phrase of tax collectors six times before we even get here. And these are the last, really last people. And Luke has already mentioned tax collectors six times and most of the time, or all the time, he mentions them in a very favorable way. In a very favorable way. In Luke, uh, starting in Luke 5, we know Luke 5 is the call of Matthew, Levi, right? He's the tax collector. He's sitting there and Jesus comes along and he sees uh, Matthew collecting taxes there. And he says, hey, come follow me. And of course, the Bible says he left everything behind and he gets up and follows Christ. And that's in Luke 5, 27, where it says he left everything, rose up and began following him. And that encounter with Christ changes his life so much that two verses later, uh, Matthew Levi, uh, the disciple, basically has a whole feast, a banquet, I think the Bible says, where he invites his friends. And guess who his friends are? Tax collectors and sinners. And he's sitting there eating with tax collectors and sinners. And of course, Pharisees who are watching Jesus at this point of time, they're like, man, what's he doing? And then Jesus has to correct them a little. In verse 31, he says, man, you know what? The sick need a doctor. It's not the healthy. And so you get the idea of the lostness and God's heart for those who are lost right from the beginning. 
And then again, think about another, uh, I, uh, another situation in Luke chapter 18. It's, a te- uh, it's the story about these two people who go to pray. One is a Pharisee and one is the tax collector again, right? The Pharisee and all his um, whatever show and pomp and everything else goes and prays what? Thank God I'm not like a sinner, especially not a sinner like this tax collector, right? And then, of course, the tax collector is like, man, he can't even lift his head up, and he's like asking for God's mercy and forgiveness. And then Jesus asked the question, who went home justified? It's the tax collector again. God's heart for the lost. God's heart for the lost time and time again. And then, of course, he accuses in in Luke 7, they accuse him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so you see this time and time again, these tax collectors, these low people, the lost people. And then he says, hey, you need to understand the heart of God here, Luke is trying to say. And that's why the parables that he puts together, three parables together in Luke 15. Because he's trying to point out to the message, trying to point out the heart of God, which is for the lost. Because very often you see, almost always, the tax collector recognize their lostness and are saved. Whereas the righteous, the self-righteous Pharisee has no clue of how lost he really is. And walks away without the blessing of God. Anyway, you see in Luke chapter 2, anyway, just I know I got a little into the background right there. And of course, in verse 2, you have these tax collectors and sinners are sitting around there. And verse 2 tells us what happens. Predictable. Pharisees are so predictable. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I mean, they had no real heart for the lost. They had no heart for a sinner. They had no idea what Christ was about. They had no idea what God was all about. Anyway, Jesus starts with this first parable right there in verse 8. Uh, Sorry, in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And then the point of the story, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. If you look at verse, suppose, verse 4, suppose one of you, uh, it's just a very rhetorical question because he's saying, I mean, everybody would do that. You know, he's just asking, suppose, it's, it's a rhetorical question because everybody would do that. A shepherd You know, it's not just about keeping track of your sheep. For them, he's established a relationship with the sheep. And when one is missing, he knows which one is missing. And so he leaves the 99. Yeah, not just, you know, he takes care of the 99. He just doesn't abandon the 99, but he leaves them to go look for that one sheep. And when he finds the sheep, what does he do? He throws it over his shoulders and brings it back. And when he gets home, you know, he's so excited about it. He calls all his friends together and he says, hey, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. Again, the point of the parable is pretty straightforward. doesn't need a lot of explanation. But the point is this. There is rejoicing when the lost are saved. There is rejoicing when the lost are saved. The parable, like I said, has one point. 
and the reason the friends come into the picture is because we need to understand this the joy it gives the lord is not something that he can just okay it's not like okay he's back and put a check mark god is not looking at people that way but there is genuine rejoicing to the point where there is a celebration he can't contain himself when a lost person is found the joy is so he's so full of it that he has to share it it's like news when we're really excited and we get something you know something happens we can't wait to tell someone else about it and that's the idea here because there is rejoicing it's so wonderful it's not again it's not like oh great that's happened you know no there's a big big old like a big celebration happening right there verse 7 it says i tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who do not repent it's amazing god's heart right there reveals to us god's heart that god is a seeking shepherd whose joy is uncontainable when the lost are found when the lost are found again it's just you know i always think about it so many times we just think about god you know all these people are lost and he's got this book you know that book of life that we talk about you know, oh he's back and puts a check mark and like closes it up waits for the next person no when there's a check mark there's rejoicing there's rejoicing when one is lost that's the heart of god it's not like okay yeah he came back no there's rejoicing in his heart as one commentator puts it it is the idea that god in the deepest part of his nature so longs for the soul of a lost man and a lost woman that he pursues that to the degree that when or having found that person the celebration heaven itself is barely enough or big enough to contain and that was really interesting the point is this god goes after the sinner god is not like the pharisee or the scribe who grumbles but he goes after the sinner and then he comes to the second parable right there parable of the lost coin that we call the lost coin similar very similar or suppose a woman again a rhetorical question because everybody would do this suppose a woman has 10 silver talents and loses one doesn't she light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it again like i said just a rhetorical question because anybody would do that you lose a coin you just turn everything upside down to try and find that coin right and then verse verse 9 tells you the reaction the amazing reaction and when she finds it she calls her friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me i have found my lost coin my lost coin i have found my lost my lost coin again it's not okay i checked that last sheep that has come back in i'm not oh yeah i found it put it back in my purse and let's not make a big deal about it no when the lost are found there is rejoicing she calls the neighbors and says says hey rejoice with me Amen. my lost coin has been found it's the same reaction the same celebration it shows that the joy cannot be contained within her because the lost have been found yes, then of course the interpretation putting it into the god's perspective in the same way i tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents same idea the heart of god revealed right there when one person is saved lord rejoices and there's a big celebration when that happens 
Why does it bring joy? Because it touches his heart. That's what it's about. That's what his heart. You understand what fulfillment is about? That's what it is right there. I like the, the words, and I looked it up, tried to look it up in the Greek and several different versions. It's kind of interesting. It says, verse 10, look at it carefully. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Who's doing the rejoicing right there? I think we need to look at that a little carefully because the rejoicing is not, and several commentators and scholars point to it, and I tend to agree, it's God rejoicing in the presence of his angels. If that's not how excited God gets when one person is saved, what about us? Are our hearts really longing for the lost, looking for the lost? We don't do the saving. All we can do is tell them about Christ. The Lord does the saving. But do we really have a heart for the lost like the Lord has right here? Whose joy is it? It's God's joy that has, it can't be contained at this point and the whole heaven celebrate with him. Again, the emphasis of both parables is the same. God is just extremely happy, just lack of another word, when the lost are found. Again, we need to know the heart of God because we need to have that same kind of compassion. Again, just keeping, we're not keeping track. It's never a numbers game with God. That's the point. Oh, one more, oh, um, 10 is complete, one more, 100 is complete. It's never a numbers game. It's just rejoicing when the lost are found. When the lost are found. It's like the shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. It's like the woman who seeks the lost coin. And then, of course, the most famous of all the parables, in starting in verse, verse 11, what we call the parable of the lost sons. I know the prodigal son gets the, the bad end of the deal, but Jesus makes it pretty clear. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. He's always pointed to two sons, not just one. We just picked up on one, the prodigal. It says, uh, there was a man who had two sons. The younger, of, uh, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Uh, and so again, clearly points that this man had two sons. And I think we often overlook this part there. Because it says in verse 12, he divided his property between them. Did only the first son, did, sorry, did only the prodigal get his part? They got, they both got their share. They both were there when that happened. It's the younger person who opens his mouth, and so we can try to focus on him a lot more. But it's both of them there. Both of them are involved in this plot. Both of them, I think the point is that both are lost. If you read the whole parable, you get it that they both are lost. So they're both standing there in front of the father asking, in other words, wishing for the father to be dead. Right, and in the viewpoint of any uh, Middle Eastern culture, I mean, that deserve, they deserve to be punished for making such a weird request, correct? But you see the grace and, of the Father who allows them and gives them whatever, right? He's gracious enough and does the unexpected thing, giving them the inheritance. And it says what? He divided his property between them. And then you know the story. I'm going to just go through it real fast. Not long after that, what? The youngest son goes off, does his own thing, squanders all his money, 
God gets really poor, loses everything he has. There's a famine. And when there's a famine, what does he have to do? I mean, he's got to start begging people. And then the only thing he can do is get a job taking care of a, whatever citizen of another country, his pigs, right? The most humiliating thing a Jew can ever do, take care of unclean animals. And here he's doing that. Of course, the famine, like I said, the famine hits and then there's nothing to do. He's so hungry, he longs to eat what the pigs are eating, but even that. And so it's pretty obvious, you know, and we jump to that. The lostness of the first son is pretty obvious. He squanders everything, turns his back on all his privileges, turns his back on the love of his father, took everything he had and just wastes it. That's all. There's no other word for it. Then verse 17, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. This is the first time we see that he expresses any kind of sorrow at all. Any kind of sorrow. And, you know, he becomes aware of his situation that he is in a really bad situation. And then I think it's the beginning of repentance that we say. You, know, you see the beginning of repentance right there where he takes responsibility. Repentance starts with taking responsibility. For why he is in that situation instead of blaming everybody else, right? I will get up, verse 18, go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Again, it's the idea and the process of repentance. I will go back. I will go back to my father. That's the whole idea. Repentance is getting up and going back. In verse 20, it says that he got up and came to his father. That's the idea. He's rehearsing in his mind, and we'll go over that real quick. Because he realizes he's not just offended his father, he's offended God too. And he gets up and makes his journey back. And that's the point of resolution is when you decide something, you act on it. And that's exactly what he does. And that's the idea, repentance, the whole idea of repentance, again, is turning around. And that's what he's doing, he's turning around and making his way back. And of course, he rehearses it in his head. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And what does that mean? He shows he's taking responsibility. He has this idea of re repentance. And now, you know, the humility is coming in. You know, I don't really deserve anything. It's the idea of humility kicking in here. And you got to remember, it's very similar to what happens in Luke, uh, Luke 18, the tax collector and the priest. It's the same kind of thing. I don't, you know, God... I can't even lift my head up to you. I don't deserve anything. It's the same, almost the same idea portrayed right there. The last, the prodigal son and the tax collector. Of course, we know who is justified in the story. Of course, the one who comes back to God. So we see humility, you see repentance, you see humility gets up and starts going back. You see, and what does he say? Humility, he says, I will come and become, you know, the lowest. I don't want to be put back to where I was. I'll just start right at the bottom. And what does that indicate? Submission to something again. Submission to his father's authority again. And then we know the amazing part of the story where he gets up and starts walking. And I think very often, quite often, we forget the father running out to meet him. The father running out to meet him while he was still a long way off. While he was still a long way off, that's the sinner, the prodigal son, long way off. How does he see him? Because he's been seeking. That's the point of the previous parables too. He seeks the lost. He sought 
I mean, he's seeking after that sheep, lost sheep, seeking after that lost coin. And here you have God, the father, or the father in the story, seeking the lost son. That's the heart right there. While he was far away, he seeks, the father still seeks him, looks out for him. And then when he's there, he comes running, recognizes him, of course. He has this compassion, throws his arms around him and kisses him and everything else. This guy starts to, you know, what he has already thought about, starts rehearsing this. And before he can even finish what he has to say, the dad cuts him off. Because what God is all about and what the Father is all about is finding the rejoicing that happens when the lost are found. He's not interested in excuses anymore. He's not interested in our conditions. That's the part. I'm coming back, but I have these conditions. No, it's not going to happen that way. He's coming back with his arms open wide. He says, hey, you know, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. But it says quickly, he just moves on. Hey. He's restoring him back to where he was. There is no mourning over sin. It's mourning is rejoicing over the sinner coming back. Amen. And I think that's where it is, the whole thing. And just, I don't know, just reading through this parable, you can keep going on. You see that the, uh, that the father has this celebration where he says, hey, bring the fattened calf or whatever. There's this big celebration. There's this big party going on. I've got plans for you. All I needed for you to do is turn around, realize, take accountability, take responsibility, and I've got plans. And it gives him back what he was lost. And so you see the Lord's heart right there again. There's the celebration that's happening here. And then comes the older son, right? The older son who's done what he's always done. He received, please don't forget, he received his share of the inheritance too. Just because he didn't go squander it away, just because he was close to the father doesn't mean he knew who the father was, really. Did he really love the father? I've asked myself that question many times. Did the, he stayed around, but did he really love his father? When you genuinely love someone, we know that verse, you know, you rejoice with them when they rejoice, you cry with them when they mourn with them when they mourn. But he missed, he doesn't know what love really is because when the father rejoices, what does he do? Just throw a hissy fit because he doesn't know what the father is all about. The heart of the father. What does he say? Man, look, for so many years I've served you. You know, I've, What does he say? I've not neglected one of your commands. Reminds me of that rich young ruler. I've, not, I've done everything. He says, except sell everything you have and come follow me. Like, no, not. He walks away disappointed. Same reaction right here again. I've done everything that you've wanted me to do. And then he's like, hey. He still says compassion. Talk about his seeking father. He goes out again. He seeks the lost sheep, seeks the lost coin, seeks the son who was far away, but also seeks the son who stayed close by. That's the heart of the father, seeking that which was lost. There is no, I mean, we serve him out of duty and obligation or whatever. It doesn't matter. If we miss the heart of God, we're missing the point of serving him at all. Seeking the heart of God. And of course, we know the point he's trying to make here. Jesus, you know, the lost person, I mean, the prodigal son is the lost, the tax collectors and the sinners. And the one who stayed back, the older brother, is a reflection of the Pharisees. Who was justified at the end? The tax collector, the younger son, the prodigal was justified. But who does God have his heart for? Everybody in the story. Everybody in the story. 
He loved the Pharisee as much as he loved the sinner. The difference was this. The sinner recognized who he was and turned back. Versus the Pharisee was so caught up doing his own thing, he failed to see the need for a savior. What's the heart of God right here? It's seek and save the lost. If we claim to love him, if we claim to be part of his family, part of his body, how can we not have the same heart as the heart of God itself? Are we, are we really looking to seek and save the lost like Christ does? Is our focus just on us and what we have done and what we deserve because of we have kept the law and kept everything there is, not neglected one of his commands, or is our heart ready to rejoice over one person who's being saved? The heart of the Lord is to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. Bow your heads with me. It's just, it was... I don't know. Following Christ is not just about knowing who God is, but it's about having the heart of God. The compassion he has for that which was lost. Time and time again, in the gospel, especially in the gospel of Luke, you see him looking for the lost rejoicing with him the youngest son in the story he he sees what's happening he feels that sorrow, that repentance, there's this humility, there's this submission, and of course we know when he comes to God, to the Father, the Father restores him to sonship. The second son, on the other hand, there's no repentance, there's no confession, there's just this coldness, coldness and, and deadness in his heart because he really doesn't know who the Father is. father's heart that's the question do we know the father's heart because God is all about seeking and saving those who are lost on our own so hard church sometimes we are like those Pharisees where we know everything there is to know about church we've been in church our whole lives we know every story that there is in the Bible yet we fail to see the heart of God itself and respond to his heart it's all 
all about the lost church and we need to be all about the lost as well. We don't do it with condemnation or pride or anything of that sort. But our hearts need to be just like the Lord. The rejoicing that happens when the lost are saved. father in the prodigal story of the prodigal son of the lost sons, the father is there seeking, waiting, waiting for that person to just, hey, come turn. He's waiting for him to just recognize, take responsibility. Hey, I did it my way. It didn't turn out too good. I know there's a father who will accept me. There's a God who accepts us just the way we are, church. Again, we don't do the saving. It's just the Holy Spirit who does the saving. But what we got to tell people is to tell them about the love of God. Show them who Christ really is, that God is there with His arms open wide. His love for us is just unimaginable how much He really loves us. He cares. Yes,